Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. I thank you for having me and Tiffany. And uh, We love this church. We love Mercy Hill and what God's doing here. And uh, I'm thankful for Pastor Mike for extending this invitation. Uh, we are in Acts chapter 3 this morning. So if you want to go ahead and be finding that in your Bibles, Acts chapter 3. And this morning I want to ask and answer the question of where the power of the church comes from. Uh, where does the power of the church come from? Now, if we look around in our world and our culture, our culture and our world is fascinated by power, right? Whether it's political power, and if you watch the news or maybe you stay far away from that, uh, maybe you've heard about all the things that are going on in the Middle East and Syria and Russia and all this stuff. So the question of power seems to be everywhere, and even political parties battling with one another over power. Or maybe you're not a political person, but maybe you're a sports fan and uh, we're coming up on the end of some seasons and the beginnings of others, and there's all this talk about who's going to be strong this season, who's going to be powerful this season, and we're looking for strong players and strong coaches, and you have your powerhouse teams, or maybe you're a movies fan, and uh, this month we have coming out the next Avengers movie, which some of you are crossing down days on your calendar, and some of you have no idea what I'm even talking about. <laughs> Uh, but a superhero movie of these super-powered individuals fighting a super-powered bad guy. Or maybe you're a book reader and you're a, you're a literary fan, and all the fiction books over the last hundred years, uh, from Lord of the Rings to Chronicles of Narnia to Harry Potter, about this struggle between the powers of good and evil. So it seems like power, the question of power, is everywhere. And even in the church, we get caught up in questions of power. Listen, we want to see Jesus' name proclaimed. We want to see his kingdom expand. We want to see his power you know, shown throughout the world. And so we start to look for power. We start to see where power is. But see, what the church gets into sometimes is because of all the conversation of power that's happening around us, there are all these pitfalls and landmines that we can run into of pursuing power the world's way and not the Bible's way, not God's way. So this morning from Acts chapter 3, as we look about this question, or look at this question, of where does the church's power come from? We want to see what God has to say about this subject and answer this question. So Acts chapter 3, I'm just going to read the first 12 verses, and uh, we're going to go through the whole chapter, so I need you to listen fast. And you are the caffeinated congregation, right? You're the later crowd, so you should be good, so uh, you're ready to go. So Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, God's Word says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? May God bless the reading of his word. You see that question in chapter 12. 
Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made this man walk? The question of power is the question of Acts chapter 3, and we know it is not only because of that question there in verse 12, but also because in the next chapter, as Peter and John are brought before the ruling council of the Jews in chapter 4 verse 7, they ask, by what power or by what name did you do this miracle? So that's the theme that they're looking at, is what kind of power is being unleashed in the world here in Acts chapter 3. And so I think it would be helpful for, helpful for us as we look at this not just as a historical account, some monument to the past, but as God's word for us today, what God is up to today, because this God is our God, to ask the question, where does the church's power come from? And to first remove some of those obstacles and landmines that we're prone to get into and look first at where the power is not. And then we'll finish up looking where the power is. So three places the church's power is not. The church's power is not in its ministers. The church's power is not in its ministers. And listen, as you know, uh, or some of you may know, and if you don't have a church background or, or don't know a whole lot about the New Testament, Peter, this apostle Peter, had the world's biggest case of foot-in-mouth syndrome. He said and did things that you would just sit back and go, bro, why did you say that? Did you think that through? No filter. Absolutely none. And you read throughout the Gospels time after time where Peter just steps forward and is confident and so wrong. Right? And this Peter, this Peter who got up, and, and you looked at it last week or the last couple of weeks, if he got up and preached at Pentecost and 3,000 people come to Christ, and you might think, man, this guy's got it together. But just less than two months before his Pentecost sermon, Peter is sitting in an upper room with Jesus, and Jesus is saying, listen, you're all going to run away from me. You're all going to abandon me as I'm going to be betrayed. And Peter stands up and says, listen, all these knuckleheads might leave you, Jesus, but I'm not going anywhere. And Jesus looks him in the eye and says, Peter, before this night's over, you're going to deny three times that you even know me. And Peter just digs his heels in as if Jesus doesn't really know what he's talking about and says, Jesus, even if all fall away, I'll never deny you. And by the time the sun rose the next day, he had denied that he even knew Jesus three times. And less than two months later, he's preaching this sermon. Anyone who knew Peter knew the power was not in Peter. And it wasn't in John either. And listen, we have a culture in America that is fascinated by celebrity pastors. Fascinated by people who write books and preach at conferences and have big churches. And there are people that are just willing to run after anything they say, anything they put out. But you don't have to watch the news very long to read account after account after account of pastors that have fallen pastors who have proven the power is not in them. And listen, you can just get to know any of us and you realize very quickly power is not in us. You become friends or get even a little bit close to peeling back kind of the platform veneer and you say, listen, the power is not in the guy on the platform. And so what we need to see is don't follow preachers, we follow Christ. Don't be committed to a teacher, be committed to the book. The power is not in the minister's. Second place the power is not, it's not in the members of the church. It's not in the members, and we see this both in the lame beggar and then also in the crowd. Listen, this guy had sat at this gate his whole life. He was crippled from birth, and because of his condition, it was considered a defect that made him ceremonially unclean. So when you read that he goes leaping and praising into the temple, that was the first time he'd ever been allowed to set foot in there. And spiritually, he represents every single one of us that we are born with a defect called sin. 
That we are by nature separated from God and in rebellion to Him. And because of our defect, we are not allowed into His presence. We don't get to go in. And listen, if, if the beggar had been able to heal himself, he would have long time ago. He was unable to heal himself. The power was not in him. And the power's not in the crowd either because they come running and they're impressed, but they're confused. They're really impressed by Peter and what he's done. And this is the first healing miracle that we see in the book of Acts. So maybe this is reminding them of Jesus and all the healings that he did and all the miracles that he performed. So they come running and they're like, what happened and who's this guy? And the, the word's getting passed around. And oh, yeah, yeah, you know... Horace, or whatever his name was, that sat at the gate. Like, he's, he's good now. He's in the temple. He's walking. He's praising God. We don't know. And Peter stands up and says, why are you guys staring at us? Why are you looking at us as if by our power we did this? See, the crowd was impressed, but they were confused. They were looking for power in the wrong way. That is, I think, why Peter preaches the sermon that he does to them, as he says, listen, you guys are impressed by this power to heal a lame man, uh, but you killed the author of life. You're so hung up on these earthly representations of power, but you miss what true power really is. The power is not in them. And if we have churches that can run on manpower alone, those are not biblical New Testament churches. As instrumental and as vital as every volunteer and every servant that is here, as instrumental and as vital as you are, you're not where the power comes from. And if your church can run on manpower alone, you are not a New Testament biblical church. The power is not in the ministers, it's not in the members. In the third place, the power is not, it's not in the methods. It's not in the methods. See, we might easily say, okay, we've gotten to know some pastors, we've watched the news, it's not in the ministers. And we've been in church long enough to get to know some of these people that are around us, and we know power is not in them, and it's certainly not in me. But I think that methods is one of those places where we really get lured away. That we live in a day and age where there are conferences after conferences of guys who will, for a price, tell you how to have unstoppable success in your ministry and your church. I mean, for just a few low, low payments of $99.99, they will tell you (laughs) how to take your church from three people to 35 million people in about seven and a half hours. Right? They've got the surefire method, and they're, every year the market is just flooded with book after book about here's this new paradigm, here's this new method, and if you follow these set, seven steps or these ten essential ingredients, you'll have ministry success. And people just eat that stuff up, and there's a new program that's out, and you've got to do it. And if you want to reach people and see disciples made, then that's the program you've got to do. And people just go all in for this stuff. But what you find when you read the book of Acts is that it almost seems like these guys did not have a plan at all. <laughs> right? Like what you're just faced with over and over is like if Peter lived today and preached Pentecost sermon, 3,000 people get saved, right? Like some book publisher is coming up to Peter and going, listen, for $50,000, for $75,000, if you will write, have Pentecost anywhere, anytime, like we will pay you. We'll get a conference going. Right? But that's not, that's not what happens. Instead, we see a group of people that are just humble and dependent upon God, who stand there with arms open, hands up, saying, God, what do you have for us? They pray a whole lot. 
They listen to the Spirit a lot. They preach and teach Jesus every chance they get. But you don't read about their small group curriculum. (laughs) You don't read about their children's outreach methodology. They didn't have one. And I'm not saying that programs are evil any more than I'm saying that pastors or church members are bad. I'm saying that's not where the power is. And it's very easy for us to marry our methods and think that this is the way we're going to reach people and there's no other way that we can reach people. As if God is limited to a program that started less than a century ago. What was he doing before that to grow his church? So it's good to have strategies. It's good to have methods. But don't marry them. The power's not there. And I would just suggest to you, I'm not advocating that you actually do this, but maybe just do the thought experiment of what would happen if you canceled every program for the next six months and spent all of that time praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Do you honestly think it would be a waste of time? Do we really think that that would be a poor use of our time or that we would get any less accomplished if we just begged God to move? Not at all. So the power is not in the ministers, it's not in the members, and it's certainly not in the methods. So we looked at the places where the power is not, and those are the most maybe common landfalls and pitfalls or landmines that we need to look for. And now we're left with the question, well, where is the power? Where does the church get her power from? How is this little ragtag group of people going to impact the world and advance the kingdom of God? It's not in the ministers, it's not in the members, it's not in the methods. The place where the church's power is, the church's power is in its master. The church's power is in its master. This is Peter's very quick answer, because if you look back at uh, verses 5 and 6, when Peter says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. See, what it meant to say something or do something in the name of somebody else was to do it under their authority. In Matthew 28, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That means that Jesus rules and is sovereign over everything. That means this universe is his. That means there is not a molecule or an atom anywhere in this universe in rebellion to the rule and reign of Christ. Which means that there's nothing in this universe that gets to deny or defy King Jesus. His authority, his power is over everything. He created it all. He upholds it all by the word of his power. Listen, everything in creation is sustained at this moment because Jesus wills it to be so. If Jesus, for one millisecond, took his hand off of creation, it would all fall apart. That's the kind of power we're dealing with. That's the kind of king we're coming to. And that's who Peter says, in his name, in his authority, rise up and walk. Get up. Let's go praise God. And then, in verse 12, after he asked this question, verse 13, his next sentence is, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus. He immediately begins preaching Jesus. In verse 14, he calls him the holy and righteous one. Holy meaning he is separate, he is set apart, he's not like us. He is totally distinct and totally unique. He is righteous, meaning that he never sins. He never does anything wrong. He never does anything bad. He is, in fact, the standard and the definition of what goodness is. 
Then in verse 15, he is called the author of life, meaning he is the creator and the sustainer of all life, both physical and temporal, and then eternal and spiritual. It all comes from him. And Peter says, this is the Messiah. It is by his power, in verses 19 and 20, that sins are blotted out and times of refreshing come. But he says, you missed this power. Remember, they're the ones who are impressed but confused. Right? One thing to notice about this crowd is they're going up at the hour of prayer. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and they're going up to the temple to pray. These are the religious people. Right? These are the people who keep their noses clean. These are the good, moral friends and neighbors that we would all be happy to live in the neighborhood with. And Peter looks him square in the eye and says, you killed the author of life. He's not out on the outskirts of town in a bar somewhere with a bunch of people who've messed everything up. He's saying, you good people messed up royally. And you were looking for a Messiah who was going to come in and overthrow Rome? And Jesus came in and he overthrew death. That you missed this one. And in verse 18 he says, But what the God foretold by the mouths of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. They weren't looking for a suffering Christ. That's not the kind of power they were looking for. Because remember where we started in looking at how all the culture thinks about power, whether it's politics or movies or books or anything, our world is fascinated by violent power to the point where we think that's what power means. We think that power is nuclear warheads and tanks. We think it's large armies. And Jesus comes in and he exemplifies and he exudes a different kind of power. It is a power that comes from love. A power that heals and does not destroy. A power that mends and does not break. Many of us know that it is much easier to break something than it is to fix it. <laughs> right? When I was six years old, I broke my arm for the second time. My left arm for the second time, six years old. I was a genius. Man, I was a, I was, I was a brilliant kid. And so when I was six, I broke my arm swinging on a clothesline pole because I grew up in Ocean Way. And <laughs> so I'm swinging on a clothesline pole, and it took no time at all to go from swinging to falling to broken arm. Took no time at all. But it took six weeks with a cast for that thing to be healed. It took a lot more energy, it took a lot more time to heal something than it did to break it. And if you've ever been through anything like that, you understand what that is like. But all of us, I think, understand what that's like in our relationships. That many of us have been in circumstances where one word, one sentence, one little passing comment is enough to destroy a relationship that took years to build and takes years to heal. But it doesn't take much at all. And so the power that Jesus uses, the power that Jesus flows out of him is a different kind of power than the world is fascinated by. It is a loving power. It is a healing power. It is a reconciling power. It was an incredible miracle to heal a lame man born crippled from birth. It is nothing compared to the miracle of raising a dead sinner to life. See, it didn't cost Jesus anything to give that lame man the ability to walk. It cost Jesus his blood to raise a dead sinner to life. 
The miracle of Acts chapter 3, the big miracle of Acts chapter 3, is not in the first few verses with the lame beggar. The miracle is in the last verses where Peter is calling these people to repent and believe. That is the greater miracle. As Jesus is calling people to himself, saying, be reconciled to me. Be forgiven. Come, turn back. And this this power that Jesus has, not just to turn a lame man into a leaping and walking man, but to turn sinners from their wickedness back to himself. Look at verse 19. Peter says, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Now skip down to the last verse in the chapter, verse 26. Peter ends his sermon by saying, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So Peter commands them to repent, and then he comes back and says, but your turning is a blessing from God. It is his gift to you. And we know that this is how Peter is thinking about this, because just a few chapters later, in chapter 11, verse 18, Peter has been to the house of Cornelius, this Gentile house. They've repented, come to God. And as Peter tells the account, this is the Jews' response in verse 18. It says, after Peter reported the conversion of the Gentiles, then, this is what the Jews' response, then to the Gentiles also... God has granted repentance that leads to life. They saw repentance, turning from sin to God as a gift from God himself. That sinners, by nature, don't just wake up and decide one day they're going to go to God. That a heart that is set against God and against his law, as outwardly religious and moral and upright as they may appear, inwardly they are set against God and against Christ. And so God comes in and he turns that sinner to himself. That Christ, by his blood, has purchased his church. And he is on a mission to turn sinners back to himself. That is what Jesus is up to. That's what he's using his power to do. At church, we need to be a church where Jesus is the center of all. Jesus is the center of everything because Jesus doesn't come to church to sit on the back row and just sign off on your plans. He didn't die to do that. He died and he rose again to be the king, to be the center. It's where he deserves to be. It's where he demands to be. And he has every right to occupy that position. And a church will only function properly when Jesus is in that spot. You put anything else in that center spot And that church is sick and on its way to dying, no matter how outwardly prosperous that church may appear. From a spiritual perspective, that church is not healthy if Jesus is not at the center. And so we have to be people. You have to decide to be a people that Jesus is going to be the central focus of everything. And that may take some things. It may take simplifying some things putting in some guardrails so that we don't marry our methods and we don't look to our ministers or to our members for power, but we are honestly and constantly looking to Jesus. That He's the one we're looking to and we never get off track. And that's a constant course realignment. 
because we're so prone to wander, but to every week, every day, come back and say, no, Jesus is the center of everything. All the power is his, all the glory is his, all the praise is his, all the honor is his. It doesn't belong to anyone or anything else. It's all Jesus's. So we may need to simplify some things and get some things back right. And my last question I want to leave you with this morning is this. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready to stand and meet this author of life? Are you ready to stand before this Jesus? Have your sins been blotted out? Have you been turned from your wickedness? Have you repented and come back to him? Have you seen that Jesus did not just die for sinners in general? He died for your sins. It is a dramatic change that happens when you know the gospel in general to the gospel as personal, that Jesus did not just die for sinners as some crowd out there. He died for my sins. It was my sin that held him on that cross. It was my sin that sent him there to take the wrath of God for me. And it was your sin that did that. So are you ready to stand before him? And then as a church, are you ready to experience something like Acts chapter 3? Are you ready for this? Because this is exciting stuff, man. The book of Acts, we read this stuff, and we're, we are all in until chapter 4. Because spoiler alert, after chapter 3 comes chapter 4, and in chapter 4, Peter and John end up in trouble for what they did in Acts chapter 3. And not everybody's on board, and not everybody's happy about this Jesus message that's getting spread around. So yes, we want to see we want to see people come to Christ. We want to see Nassau County transformed into the image and likeness of God. We want to see strongholds broken down. We want to see people delivered out of bondage, but it comes at a cost. There's a cost related to it. And throughout the book of Acts, you're going to see this ramp up in more and more persecution. It is worth it for the glory and honor of Jesus. It is worth it for the joy that we have in serving him, but it does come at a cost. And so as a church, it's easy to get hyped up and say, yeah, we want Jesus, we want his power, we want him to be the center. Are you ready for what Satan is going to bring against you when you make that commitment? Are you ready for what it's going to cost you? Listen, the payoff is more than we could ever hope or imagine, but the cost is there. Now, are you ready for it? Are you ready? Because this is what God wants to do. Remember we said the book of Acts is not a history textbook for us to read and be like, oh, that's great that God used to do those kinds of things. He doesn't do those things now. The book of Acts is written to tell you that this is your God. This is what He loves to do. And the Jesus who said, on this rock, I will build my church, He is still building His church. He's not done with it yet. He purchased it with His own blood, and He will not stop until He has finished what He set out to do. And he has more than enough power to make it happen. So God is calling us into this. But are you ready? Are you ready? Let's pray.